Baba? Yes, my son. Tell me a story. Which one? The story of home. Millions of years ago, a meteorite made of vibranium, the strongest substance in the universe, struck the continent of Africa, affecting the plant life around it. And when the time of men came, five tribes settled on it and called it Wakanda. The tribes lived in constant war with each other until a warrior shaman received a vision from the panther goddess Bust who led him to the heart-shaped herb, a plant that granted him superhuman strength, speed, and instincts. The warrior became king and the first black panther, the protector of Wakanda. Four tribes agreed to live under the king's rule, but the Jabari tribe isolated themselves in the mountains. The Wakandans used vibranium to develop technology more advanced than any other nation. But as Wakanda thrived, the world around it descended further into chaos. To keep vibranium safe, the Wakandans vowed to hide in plain sight, keeping the truth of their power from the outside world. And we still hide, Baba? Yes. Why? Welcome again, Hope. I'm so glad you're here to worship with us this weekend. We are finishing up the month of May that we've been studying the book of Proverbs as a part of our 2019, uh, every, book, every, every month of the year of 2019, we're looking at a different book of the Bible. So May has been Proverbs for us. It's also been our scripture and a movie message series where at all the campuses we're using the same movies that have come out in the last year or so to explore a book that often we don't teach on a lot because it's got some unique and, and difficult to understand concepts and ideas. And oftentimes we can use our own culture, some songs, some different movies to help us explore these biblical themes. So that's what we've been doing. And this weekend, we get to take a look at uh, the movie Black Panther that came out just a little over a year ago. And I, had, I have to confess, when I learned that I was going to be on the preaching schedule where Black Panther was the illustration uh, uh, movie, I got really excited. Uh, I, I'm a sucker for all this stuff. I grew up reading comic books. I watched the cartoons. I've seen all of these movies. And by all, I mean I've seen all of these movies. I am a fan. So this is exciting for me. And, and it turns out that I'm probably not the only sucker out there for these things. Uh, since 1989, in the last 30 years, can you guess how many different comic book superhero movies have been made just in the last 30 years? Over 75 different comic book superhero movies have come out in the last 30 years. And you'd think over time that these things would just, you know, kind of fade away. The stories would get played out. We've seen them a bunch of times. And in fact, the opposite has been true. The most recent comic book superhero to movie, movie to come out broke all opening weekend box office records. The, the Avengers, it beat out Titanic for opening weekend. Currently, it's making over $2.6 billion worldwide. And it's a comic book superhero movie. My question is, why? Why do we keep making these movies? Why do we keep coming back to watch these movies, to explore these characters and to, to see them played out in theaters? Why are we drawn to these things? Now, certainly, each individual movie has, have different you know, peculiarities and specifics that make them unique, make them special, that explore unique ideas, and Black Panther certainly one of them. Very first comic book superhero movie to be written and directed by an African-American named Ryan Coogler. Uh, and even uh, African-American writers and activists, when this movie came out, 
they pointed to this movie and said, this is an important moment for black culture, not just in America, but around the world, highlighting it as an, as an, an important time and place for us to continue overcoming racism in different cultures around the world, featuring a, a, a almost completely African-American cast. Uh, and it's, it's incredible for that. And not only that, but cinematically, it achieved great success. It's still the only comic book superhero film, not just to win one, but three Academy Awards last year as a cinematic achievement. So there are those specific things that make these characters unique. But I think if we take a step back and we look at the broader idea of these comic book superheroes, there might be something more going on that, that we keep coming back to relate to. One of the key themes and, and ideas that you saw in this opening sequence as they're sort of setting the stage for the movie, explaining the background and the culture of this fictional country called Wakanda, you, you hear the boy ask his father, you know, why are we still hiding? They have hidden themselves in plain sight, it says, from the world around them. They have cut themselves off from other cultures that might negatively influence their culture. They have prevented other cultures from experiencing the richness and the, and the, and the blessedness that they have experienced as a culture. And they're hiding in plain sight. And you hear the boy ask, well, why? Why do we still hide? And I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. You know, why do you hide? Are there things you're hiding from? Are there ways that you have built protective barriers around who you really are to keep people at a distance? Why are you still hiding? And then the movie sets out to kind of answer this question in some very interesting ways. Now, to prove to you that, that I'm not just making up my fanaticism, maybe my unhealthy fanaticism with all of this stuff, uh, that I really am uh, a fan, I recalled as I was getting ready for this sermon uh, that I watched a documentary on History Channel in 2003 called The Rise of the Comic Book Superhero. And, and by some wizardry, our production staff was actually able to grab clips from this 2003 documentary. And can we just give it up for our production team, by the way, like our staff and volunteers? Very, very little of what happens up here could happen at all with what they're doing behind the scenes. And typically, we only acknowledge them when something goes wrong. So not today. I'm glad that they're here and supporting us because they're able to, to capture a, a clip that's very interesting. It goes into the kind of the background of what the earliest writers and storytellers from the comic book heroes of the 30s, 40s, and 50s were thinking about as they developed these characters and these stories, what was on their mind as they were trying to communicate with the culture. So let's take a look at this clip. But what really made Superman revolutionary was his alter ego, Clark Kent. Kent made Superman accessible, and in turn, he needed to be Kent to be human, to have access to us. Superman's secret identity was an especially potent fantasy for the primary readers of comic books, boys. They were powerless like Clark Kent, but they dreamed that inside they were invincible heroes. Soon, it seemed like the whole country was caught up in the fantasy. With two very different superheroes raking in profits at the newsstands, it wasn't long before other publishers got into the comic book business. They knew what readers wanted, crime fighters with catchy names, and most importantly, costumes. That was a lesson cartoonist Will Eisner learned when he was developing a detective hero. One night, he got a phone call from his publisher, Busy Arnold. Working on the drawing board, the phone rings, and I could hear the jukebox going on. He was in a bar. He said, have you got a character yet? I said, yeah, I've got this guy, a detective. He said, yeah, but does he have a costume? So I'm sitting there, I was drawing the face, and I drew a mask on him. I said, well, he's got a mask. He says, that's good, that's good. 
what else? I said, well, he wears gloves. Oh, he says, go with that. He says, that's good. <laughs> so anyway, that was how the spirit uh, got a costume. I wonder if any of that resonates with you, those, those ideas, particularly the idea that, that when we explore these characters, when we engage with these characters, we are somehow trying to tap into the fantasy that, that they get to feel a certain way that we wish we could feel. You know, that, that, you know wouldn't, it, wouldn't it just be great if, if you could get bit by some radioactive spider or survive a gamma ray explosion or some such thing or, or eat a heart-shaped plant and all of a sudden you had superhuman strength and abilities and talents and you were special and you didn't have to be afraid anymore. And wouldn't that be really nice to be fearless in your life? And so we go to these movies, and, and for a couple of hours, we get to watch the screen as, as our heroes play out what we wish we could feel like. And then, of course, we have to go back to our regular lives where we feel fear, where we feel doubt, where we feel insecure. We, we continue to wrestle with, with pain and wounds from our past and from the things that we've even done to ourselves. And instead of sharing those things, instead of being open and vulnerable about those things in a healthy way, we still try to put on a costume, a mask, that at least makes us feel safe even though we know we're not. We, we put on an outfit that protects us from the world around us, a projection of a false self that keeps people at a distance so they don't know who we really are. They don't see inside ourselves. They don't see all those things we don't want anybody to know about. And that's how we live out our lives. And this actually gets us into our scripture reading for today. So we read from, from Proverbs chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Proverbs 27. Proverbs is pretty easy. It's right there in the middle of the Bible. And this is what it says in verse 19. Read this with me out loud. As a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the real person. The heart reflects the real person. So here we're seeing uh, the writer of Proverbs start to explore the issue of, of our true identity, our true self, and how to find that out, how to, how to expose that, how to get in touch with who you really are on the inside. And something we really haven't done a lot of this month that we've been studying Proverbs is, is explore the identity of the author of Proverbs. Who was the, the author and, and, and where, did, where, did, where does it fit in the context of Scripture, of the history of the nation of Israel? So we want to do that a little bit because... Well, now, anytime I teach about the authorship of Scripture, very careful to say and intentional to say that, that God is the author of Scripture, that God has inspired the words of the Bible to be written down. But the way that he chose to go about doing that was he inspired individuals to actually write them. And that allows us access to a historical context, a personality, someone's story, so that the exegetical process of understanding Scripture on a deeper level is you can actually get to know the person God inspired to write these passages, and by knowing their lives, a little, little bit about who they are and where they came from and what they experienced, you can see behind some of the words that are right there on the page. So we want to do that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that these are the Proverbs of Solomon the son of David the king. So Solomon attributed with authorship for the book of Proverbs. At certain points in the book, you'll see him say things like, these are the Proverbs of my father David that I remembered, or certain other wise figures in his culture. And, and, and this was actually a style of writing that was very familiar to the culture at the time. There were other books of Proverbs from other people groups. So the Egyptians had a book of Proverbs, uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the different people groups you read about in Scripture. This was a style, these short, wise sayings was a thing that people were used to reading. 
The key difference for the biblical book of Proverbs is it focuses on the, the monotheistic God of the people of Israel, whereas the other ones are focused more on their gods. And to get to know Solomon a little bit, I want us to take a few steps back in his, in his lineage, in his genealogy, to find out the environment that he was raised in. And we, we do that. We, if we want somebody to really get to know who we are, we talk about our parents, our, our, our family, where we came from, our, our genealogy. And so we're going to do that with Solomon and jump back a few generations to the person of Samuel. And what's great about this is this actually gets us ready for next month. So when you come back next week, we're going to be studying the book of First and Second Samuel uh, for our next month, the month of June. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. A lot of Samuel focuses on the life of King David, but it starts off in, the, in chapter 1 looking at Samuel himself and where he came from. Hannah, Samuel's mother in chapter 1, we learn, uh, has not been able to conceive a child on her own. She, she is without child, and she is praying for it. She's crying out to God for it. Her husband is even trying to console her. He even says, you've got me. Isn't that good enough? And she keeps praying for a child and wanting it. And finally, she prays this epic literary prayer. God, if you would just bless me with a son, then I will give him back to you. If you would give me a child, I will give that son back to you in temple worship, uh, that he will serve you with his life. And that's what happens. Samuel is born to Hannah, and it says in chapter 1, as soon as he was weaned, they delivered him to the temple at Shiloh. As soon as Samuel was, he is still an infant, a baby, and he is left at the doorstep of a temple to serve in temple worship the rest of his life. Now, this is a detail we would tend to overlook, but I actually talked to a few families in our church. We have a number of families at Hope Ankeny who uh, have adopted children, uh, who have cared for foster children, and I asked a few of them, have you seen any psychological effects of a child, even at infancy, given up? abandoned, rejected almost by their biological family, maybe not in that severe of a sense, but, but transferred. So, and they said, absolutely, yes, that there are psychological effects of a child, even in infancy, that can continue on through adulthood. Very real damage that can happen. And so that's the condition that Samuel is born into. And he's laid on the doorstep, not of a, of a caring, loving family or a father, the way that the, the children of Hope Ankeny are welcomed into. He is given to a priest named Eli, unfortunately, who is, by, by every biblical account, the worst father in Scripture. Hands down. Now, that's sad for me. Many of you don't know, my full name is actually Elias, so I got nothing to do with that guy. He was, he was just nuts. I'm, 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 I don't need anything with him. He was a terrible father. The Bible really points, paints this picture of, of a man who was corrupt. He had two sons who were also priests, and those two sons used their position and power as priests in the temple to steal whatever offerings and sacrifices the people would bring. They would just take it for themselves. Eli knew all about this and didn't do anything. These two sons would use their position and power to seduce young women in their, in their society. Eli knew all of this and didn't do anything about it. And this is the environment that Samuel is raised in. This kind of corruption, this kind of, you know, distance from father and son, abandonment, rejection continue to be a part of Samuel's life. And even still, God uses Samuel in some powerful and profound ways. It says that Samuel continues to be raised up by God, that he hears the voice of God audibly. He becomes a good leader for the people of Israel. And I think that's a testament to the God you and I serve. That in spite of whatever might have been going on in your life, whatever wounds you've experienced, whatever pain you've experienced, whatever things that you, that you feel like you're hiding behind masks and costumes to make sure nobody knows about, in spite of everything, God will and can still use you if you're open to being used by God. And that's Samuel's story, absolutely. So Samuel's raised up and he's beginning to lead the people of Israel at this time. They were a theocracy. God was their king. 
And, and these priests and these prophets would be intermediaries helping people understand the words of the Lord for their direction as a society. And finally, pe the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, we don't want any more of this. We, do not, we, we no longer want God to be our king. We want a real political, governmental king to rule over us like every other nation around us. We need a king. Samuel's response is very telling. He says he feels rejected by the people of Israel. He goes to God and he says, the people have rejected me as their leader. And I hear these tones of some of the things that he must have felt and experienced as a young guy feeling rejection and abandonment, growing up in a terrible household environment, and now he feels rejected by the people he's called to lead. And God, his loving father, actually says, no, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. They have rejected God. And so give them a king, anoint for them a king. And this is where Samuel goes out and he finds Saul to be the first king of the people of Israel. Saul is an interesting character. We don't know a lot about his bio biological family. We're told that Samuel identifies him because he comes from a rich family. He's the tallest. I think that was a description in the Old Testament world where if you were tall, you were somehow powerful. He was the tallest, most handsome person in all of Israel. You know, he looked the part, the, the prototypical king. Looked like a superhero. He, was, he had all the outward appearance that you'd want from a powerful leader. And so he is anointed king and kind of brought under Samuel's tutelage. Samuel kind of adopts him as a surrogate father figure. Saul starts to make some mistakes. Going, growing up in leadership, Saul does things that are contrary to God's will and the things even that Samuel's telling him not to do. The big thing that the Bible talks about Saul doing wrong that upset God and Samuel and everybody, instead of expanding the, the boundaries of the kingdom of Israel, right? God wanted his kingdom to expand, just like he still does today. The way it was happening back then is God would use military to expand their kingdom, and it was a different world, but that was Saul's the calling that God put on his life. Instead of expanding God's kingdom to the local regions, Saul would just take his armies and, do, and, and have raiding parties to different villages, and he would go in and kill some people and then just take their stuff, and go in and kill some people and take their stuff. And God was furious about this. That wasn't God's plan. Now, Samuel, as his kind of surrogate father figure, instead of going to Saul and saying, hey, you're on the wrong track. Let's try to get this right. Let's fix some things. Let's work on it. Let's grow from this. Samuel doesn't do any of that. He gets up in front of Israel publicly, shames Saul, and uses the word rejection again. He says, I am rejecting Saul, playing out the same things that he had experienced in his own life, feeling rejected, feeling abandoned. He says, I'm going to do that. I reject Saul. And he abandons him. And this is kind of the start of the, the downward spiral that the famous stories of Saul being insane and jealous and angry, it all kind of starts here with this, with this massive rejection by Samuel, by God, and he's feeling that pain. And so Samuel goes off and anoints a different king to take over from Saul while he is still alive. This leads Samuel to the family of Jesse and Jesse's sons. He goes to Jesse's household, and Jesse brings out his seven oldest sons for Samuel to look at. And again, the same story starts all over again. Samuel is looking at their outward appearance. He sees, you know, young strapping men who look like, you know, tall, and they're, they're powerful, and they'd make great leaders, I suppose. And finally, God stops him and says, no, that was a mistake. I don't look at outward appearances, God said. I look at what's in the heart. And we start to hear these things that even in the Proverbs that Solomon would eventually write, of a God who sees right through all of the masks and the costumes that we put on to try and keep ourselves safe from the world around us. God sees through all of that. He sees right to your heart. He knows exactly who you are. And God says, I want a king whose heart is turned towards me. So Samuel asks Jesse, is there anybody else in your family? It's not these seven guys. 
And Jesse says, well, there's my youngest. He's out somewhere in the fields taking care of the, the sheep and the goats. I guess we can go and try to find him. And that was David. David, the youngest of, of, of Jesse's eight sons, youngest at this time, you know, theoretically 13, 14 years old, he is the one left out to care for the sheep by himself. And in those days, when you were a shepherd and you were taking care of flocks, it wasn't as though you went out for the day and came home at night. You could be gone for weeks, months as a time as your flocks were grazing around the desert. And that was David's growing up years, you know, kind of the forgotten, dismissed youngest child of Jesse not really included in what was going on with the family. And that's who God chooses to be the king of Israel. And Samuel anoints him and then brings him into Saul's palace where he is to be raised up in leadership by Saul, who is already angry and jealous, feeling rejected. And you can kind of see where this is going. What he starts to do to David is physically abuse him, literally push him away, trying to kill him on multiple occasions. And David at this time is still a teenager experiencing all of this. this, this repeated behavior from generations of, of rejection, of abandonment, and now abuse, and this is how David grows up. Now, God uses David to become a powerful king who does a lot of great things. His heart is turned toward God. The, the, the Psalms written by David are these powerful, beautiful testaments of a man who, who loves God passionately, and, and, and none of what I'm saying is meant to dismiss the heroic actions of these, of these heroes of the Bible. You know, Samuel did, was a great prophet who heard from God, and David was a great king who, who did a lot of good things, united Israel for the first time, expanded them culturally, but he was a terrible husband, and he was a terrible father. We see instances in the Bible when David marries his first wife, it's Saul's daughter, and that causes internal conflict that David fails to manage. His oldest son from that marriage, Absalom, tries to usurp his throne while he's still alive. They fight a civil war over it. And on and on in David's history, he has uh, numerous wives and numerous sons, 19 of them. And at a certain point in his life, as things have gotten comfortable, he has an affair with Bathsheba. An affair he tries to cover up by having her husband killed. And then David and Bathsheba have a son named Solomon. Solomon is born out of adultery, born out of murder, the youngest of 19 sons who are all in conflict against their own father, and that's Solomon's life. That's what Solomon came from. Now, he writes down these Proverbs pretty early on in his rule. So on David's deathbed, he finally proclaims Solomon to be the king, and that causes more family turmoil that now we've jumped to the book of 1 Kings. So aren't you, we just blew through two whole books of the Bible right there. Come back next week still. We'll go a little bit deeper. It'll be a little bit more encouraging. Um, but, but that's Solomon's upbringing. That's his lineage, his legacy, abandonment, rejection, abuse, distance from, from father figures. And so what do you think Solomon's leadership is going to look like? When you start to explore his earliest days, what I see is a son who is basically just trying to one-up his dad. Everything that Solomon does in his early time as the leader, the king of Israel, is just trying to outdo the things that David did. So David didn't build a temple for God in Jerusalem because God told him not to. I don't live in, in temples made by human hands, God says. Solomon goes ahead and builds this temple. For God in Jerusalem. It's this magnificent, opulent temple that actually the historians and archaeologists, it doesn't exist anymore physically, but the way the Bible describes its design, its decorations, are actually very resonant of other pagan shrines that were around at the day, the style of architecture that Solomon chooses to use. 
David was this great warrior king fighting battles and, and was popular among soldiers. And uh, Solomon never fights any battles. He doesn't go to war. Instead, he actually raises up the technological power of, of his armies, making it bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. And God told him not to do that. God literally says, do not go to Egypt to get more chariots. And Solomon goes to Egypt and gets more chariots. God told him, don't do that. Solomon is the first ruler, leader of Israel, to introduce actual slavery to their culture, actual captive slavery where people are abused just for their physical strength. God told him, don't do that. God said, don't marry women from other cultures because they will turn your heart away from me to serve other gods. But David had all these wives and children, and, and Solomon outdoes him again with almost countless wives and mistresses and, and has children of his own, but he marries into Egyptian families. He marries into Moabite families, and they do turn his heart away from serving God so that by the end of his life, Solomon is not worshiping God anymore at all. Solomon has completely turned away from God. And his legacy, the legacy that he leaves, is completely ruined. The, the proverb that we read today, Proverbs uh, 27, the last verse we read, Solomon almost fulfills this prophecy that he wrote down. He said, For riches don't last forever, and the crown might not be passed to the next generation. And that's what happened to Solomon. He has two sons who split the nation of Israel in half, and it never recovers. The cultural achievements of David and, and even Solomon himself are completely ruined. And I think in large part because of, of the way that, that these men were raised, the, the generational wounds that continued to carry on and on that didn't allow them to focus on what God told them to focus on, and they allowed their lives to be completely destroyed by these issues. And one of the things that I, I love reading about Scripture, the way that I know it's true, one of the ways I know it's true, is that the Bible does not let its figures, its heroes, its characters, the people presented in it, get away with just being superheroes. You know, and sometimes we get into the habit of reading the Bible that way. You know, David, he, he, he killed Goliath. That's an heroic thing. Saul, Samuel heard the voice of God. Saul did some, some important things for the people of Israel. He certainly did. Samuel, Solomon was wise, the wisest man on earth. And again, nothing is to diminish those traits, but what the Bible says is that's not their whole story. That's not all of who they are. That's part of the mask. That's part of the costume. That's their, their facade that they, that they wear. But deep down on the inside, they have missed important, important things that God wanted them to pay attention to. And so the Bible we have at our disposal to find out stories of things that we should try to avoid, to avoid these mistakes, to not let that be part of our story going forward as God's people. Black Panther actually explores some of these uh, issues. There's a very strong father-son dynamic at work throughout this movie uh, because uh, Chadwick Boseman's character, the main character, T'Challa, has taken over the, the crown from his father who was recently killed, the, the former Black Panther, the former king. And throughout the course of the film, we, we start to learn of secrets that the father had kept from his family, uh, a secret murder, a secret abandonment of a family member. And some of these themes that start to sound a little bit familiar to things that we just read about. But as these secrets start to come out, it becomes very clear that their approach to culture, their, their hiddenness and continued hiding of things from people around them are doing more damage than if they had just been open and honest from the beginning. And so I want to watch this clip together with you as, uh, you know, through the, the uh, fantasy world, they're able to communicate from beyond the grave and talk to each other about the damage hiding has done to them. Let's watch. 
the time has come for you to come home and be reunited with me. Why didn't you bring the boy home? Why, Baba? He... He was the truth I chose to omit. You were wrong to abandon him. I chose my people. I chose Wakanda. Our future depended you on... You are wrong! All of you are wrong! To turn your backs on the rest of the world! We let the fear of our discovery stop us from doing what is right. No more. I cannot stay here with you. I cannot rest while he sits on the throne. He is a monster of our own making. I must take the mantle back. I must. I must right these wrongs. So one of the things that I appreciate about that scene is it, is it shows us what can happen when we take the responsibility in our lives to break a cycle that might have been present even in our own families. That, that at a certain point, and we see this in Scripture, uh, the, the legacy of the kings of Israel after Solomon, there were periods of time where, where men and women decided that they were going to break the cycle that had been present in their family and do the right thing, follow God's heart once again. And you have that ability in your life. And, and Jesus even teaches into this, points into this, that when, when you accept Christ into your life, when you receive the light and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, that all of a sudden you are able to stop taking off the masks and the costumes that, that maybe your family has been wearing for generations and to start something new, to say that it's going to stop with me and we're going to live a godly legacy from here on out. And Jesus points to this in Luke chapter 11. It'll be here on the screen. Luke 11, Jesus teaches this way to individuals wrestling with the same issue of identity. He says, no one lights a lamp and then hides it or put it, puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. That in a, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, with the power of God at your disposal, you don't have to hide anymore. That, that it's as senseless as having the light of Christ in your life and still covering it up the power of God in your heart and still wearing the masks and the costumes that, that try to keep people from seeing the wounded parts of your life and the broken parts of your life, from being humble enough to express those things to the people around you, that, that you have the ability to start taking off masks. Carl Jung, who was a psychiatrist, psychologist from a couple of generations ago, wrote extensively about this idea. It turns out a lot of comic book superhero characters are based on psychology uh, and explore psychological ideas. And, and Jung, throughout his life and his career, spent most of his time engaging with patients, with clients who uh, battled these issues, family wounds, and, and, and wearing costumes and, and projecting false selves out into the world to feel protected, to feel safe. And throughout the course of his practice, he wrote this. He said, it is often tragic to see how blatantly a man bungles his own life remains totally incapable of seeing how much the whole tragedy originates in himself. It is an unconscious factor, which spins the illusions that veil his world and what is being spun as a cocoon, 
which in the end will completely envelop him. And what he's saying here is that you bear a personal responsibility for the masks that you continue to put on. There are reasons for us to hide, and we have them in our past. We might have them right now today. But at a certain point, we get the ability to say no more. I'm going to stop doing that. And this can seem kind of depressing, you know, the idea of putting on so many layers of, of, of cover-up that eventually we might even forget what was inside to begin with, that all we now resonate with and identify with is the costume or the mask that we have hidden behind. Last week, Pastor Mike preached an awesome message about how at Lutheran Church of Hope, we want to be on the front lines of battling addiction and recovery in, in, in our culture and community through programs like Celebrate Recovery. And I've talked to a number of addicts who say it's not just the substance that I keep coming back to, it's the identity. Who would I be without the substance? Who would I be if I didn't use or if I didn't drink? And maybe even think in your own life, it might not be uh, chemical addiction, but it might be uh, the temptation to return to an identity that you've concocted for yourself that makes you feel safe and that's not actually who you are. And, and, and the encouraging thing is that that's not where the story has to end, that the Bible talks about ways of overcoming this. And in the Proverbs that we read today, it talks about a cure, a solution for isolation, for withdrawing, from hiding, the way for us to overcome these things. This is Proverbs 27, 17. And if there is a, a proverb from this month that we've studied, one that I would encourage you to memorize, write down on a post-it and put it on your bathroom mirror or keep it in your car or something, get to know the truth behind this, that this is a, a way for you to overcome some of these temptations to hide. Let's read this out loud together, Proverbs 27, 17. Just as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens friend. That the, the cure for hiding, the antidote for being afraid of other people seeing you is community, is companionship, is relationship. And that's why at Hope all the time we're trying to offer as many small groups and classes and things for you to connect to, to meet some other people who might become this for you, a way for you to grow in your faith. To, to stop hiding your true self from other people behind these masks and these costumes that make you feel safe, but that actually destroy your true identity, your true self. And, and so do you have that? Do you have that kind of relationship with someone you trust who you can, you know, ask questions about your identity and help you explore those issues? You know, who are you really? And then they can say to you in honest situations, hey, I see that you're still trying to hide. You're still putting on masks and wearing costumes, and you don't have to do that with me. Have you found that? Because that's what the church, part of what the church is here to do. Galatians 6.2 says that we are to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That the church, the community of faith exists to help us live into our true identity as followers of Jesus Christ. To know that we are loved, forgiven, saved, accepted by God who loves you. To know that for sure with the community who wants you to help, help you grow. Now, some of you might have been sitting here thinking this whole time, yeah, but this is just silly. Like, these are comic book characters. How am I supposed to take this seriously? Maybe it's not your thing. You haven't seen any of these movies, and you just don't care. And I get that. I mean, it's not, it's not for everybody. You're just thinking right now, man, it's a great day outside, three-day weekend. I need, to hit, I need to get to my boat or get out to the lake or just turn on my grill. You're, that's where you're at right now, and that's, that's great. When you get there, when you get to your grill or to the boat or whatever, and you turn on your Spotify playlist for you know, summer rock and roll, you are going to hear a lot of songs by these guys. Kiss, right? Detroit Rock City. I'm going to rock and roll all night. Yeah, oh man. 
It's good stuff. Five o'clock last night, they were all about that. Everyone. It was great. KISS has been touring for 50 years, and they said that this is their last year. They're not going to tour anymore, and they've been touring mostly like this, moving from fantasy characters, not real, fictional characters. These are real men who made a conscious decision 50 years ago that they were going to dress in costumes. They were going to put on masks as an actual part of their entertainment. And now that their 50 years of touring has come to an end, they're actually getting some interviews about why they decided to make this decision, why they did it on purpose, that it wasn't just a, a, a shtick or anything like that, that it was a conscious decision to do this as a part of their character in a certain sense. So I want you to listen to an interview that uh, Paul Stanley, who's the lead singer, uh, the one with the giant star on his face, he gave an interview talking about the, the, the development of this idea, that in a very real sense, using literal characters as a way to overcome certain issues in their life. Let's take a look. I didn't have a, a happy childhood. I was withdrawn, and, and I had a condition called a microtia, where uh, one of your ears isn't formed, basically. My home life wasn't great, but I'm, I'm not the type of person who wallows in, in being a victim. I think the idea of being a superhero or being somebody that people envied were, were all part of growing up with a ear abnormality, a, a physical, back then you'd call them deformities, now we call them differences. I think it all stemmed from there. Music affected me in a way that it kind of transported me to, to another place. I saw the Beatles as a kid and it was one of those moments of uh, an epiphany. I was a chubby little guy who was deaf in one ear, and yet I looked at them on Ed Sullivan and went, I can do that. We wanted to create iconic images. We wanted to be larger than life. The boots certainly helped make us larger than life. I think so. How much did your height change? It still changed about eight inches. <laughs> And then when you add ego to that, we're, we're, we're giants. Take a shy, chubby kid who is not very popular and put him behind makeup and give him a, a strong enough persona, that can get you pretty far. Ultimately, though, you have to deal with the reality that that may not be you. And if it's not you, you have to find you. Deal with the reality that that may not be you, and if it's not you, you have to find you. One last quote from Carl Jung, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you are. I hear a lot of biblical truth in that statement, that God has given you this life, however many years you have, with him to discover your truest self, and that your truest self is one with Christ at the center, the one who God says you are, the one who God knows intimately who's known you since before time began. And some of you might be starting out on this journey of, of taking off masks or, man, if you're graduates right now, entering into college, you will be tempted to start creating these personas because you think that that keeps you safe or helps you fit in. 
If you're there right now, I want you to remember very clearly the promises of Scripture that tell you exactly who you are, who God says you are. And if you're at the stage where you've really figured it out, we have a lot of great leaders in our church who are on the other side of this journey who live authentic selves, and we need you to be leaders for all of us who are still in process and still on our journey, leading the things that we're trying to do to help us, again, sharpen each other in our faith and in our lives. So wherever you are in that journey, I wanted to put up on screen just a few of the things, a few of the things the Bible says you are. Not even everything, just a couple of the things. This is who God says you really are if you accept Jesus into your life, to be Lord of your life. This is who God says you are. And let's read these things out loud. If you want to read with me these bolded words together, God says you are his child, accepted, full, one with him, no longer a slave to sin, created in his image, loved, chosen, royal, holy, special, and his. Would you go ahead and stand together and we're going to sing one more song about our identity in Christ. <laughs> 